welcome to episode 132 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of July, 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Fainan. Alrighty. Graham. Hello. And Will. Good evening. So yes, here we are. Breaking news. I'm led to believe that it is coming home. <laughs> but uh, I'm not quite sure if that's the football or herd immunity and probably a new variant, but I'll have to wait and see on that one. The Grim Reaper. <laughs> Anyway, let's do some real news then. The first one, GitHub Copilot, what they're calling AI pair programming. This is essentially a plugin to help you write code and make suggestions and stuff and take some of the work out of it. But they do stress that you do have to check it all yourself. That in of itself is not particularly interesting. The interesting part of it is that they trained the AI on loads of GPL code and generally free and open source code on GitHub, and that has got people pissed off. With good reason, given the fact that using GPL code means you have to make your code open as well, and it's not entirely clear who they expect to be legally held if you use this in software that isn't GPL, that then becomes GPL because of it. This is a brave new world that Mm. the original authors of free software licenses did not consider, I think, and that is a problem. Yeah, and I think one of the best Twitter conversations I saw was with Nat Friedman and a, a variety of kind of open source luminaries, um, Simon Phipps included. Um, and it didn't look particularly like they thought through the particular ramifications, although I can't believe it. Or maybe they just thought it's better to ask for forgiveness. But either way, Nat's response was pretty much saying this is going to be under, they assume it's going to be under fair use, creating this data set from a load of GPL source code. And But then lots of people point out this is a derived work, which is specifically catered for in the GPL, um, in that they'd have to release their code. But there really is not a huge amount of precedence on this. Um, And I do think it's a brave new world. I will say that I think it's actually quite exciting the possibility in this tech and what I'm reluctant, I I don't want like a single large corporation to be able to own and dominate their technology, especially if it's built on free software. The problem I have with this is the fact that it's probably about as good as the AI translations that Google does of French and German and stuff like that, where it uses a corpus of text and then, you know, doesn't exactly make logical sense what comes out at the other end of it. Those things are quite good, and it's the same with things like Grammarly and other grammar checkers. I think for certain people, it could be hugely helpful, and I also have no doubt that in five or ten years, it'll be writing better code than most programmers. Well, yeah, that's the big danger here, and that was inevitable, wasn't it, that AI would take programmers' jobs, and maybe you'll have to have one person checking through it or whatever, but they'll just write another bot to do that, won't they? Yeah, I think so. I think this is one of those roles that's going to become very automated especially as programmers are very expensive and temperamental. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think would an acceptable outcome be? Um, I've been thinking about this because I assume that Microsoft or GitHub would like to retain ownership over the output, over the the machine build of, of whatever intelligence they're using. But if the source code to how that set is built is open source and we can build our own open source version of the data set, then I think that's acceptable. Like I said, this was not really envisaged by the people who originally wrote free software licenses. And the devil's advocate view here is that this is not much different from using Emacs or Vim 
to write proprietary software, is it? Oh, it's not even remotely the same. You're not using the code from Emacs in a proprietary piece of software. You're just using a text editor in that case. Mm. And the the expertise that comes from like an optimized bit of code is derived directly from real free software developers, open source developers' expertise for the same problem. Whereas people who make Vim and Emacs are just really good at making text editors. I saw a good tweet by somebody. I wish I'd taken in the statement who who did it, but. They said, well, if they're so confident that this is not a derived work and it's not actually spewing out GPL code, why don't they train it on all their Microsoft products? <laughs> and then they can happily go and use that. But I mean, they're not going to do that because they know exactly what it's doing, which is spewing out the same code. And I like somebody had also said, you know, I really should have written all these down, but somebody said, why don't we just uh, fill it full of garbage then and we can train it to do all sorts of daft stuff. I'm way ahead of you. Go to my GitHub page. (laughs) (laughs) But Microsoft has really positioned itself well with this. I mean, owning GitHub, I mean, it not only, it'll know how many people have hearted Will's code, it'll know how many forks are active off it, and it'll probably know the quality of the code from all that kind of derived comment and um, engagement. And they've got the premium premier platform for that. Just imagine if you could imagine an application you want to write and something like this could write it for you and generate open source code so you can share your idea. I think that's what it's going to become in the end. Is it not going to become like the kind of HTML that Dreamweaver would produce for you, though? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? Well, and we don't already have that with Electron. <laughs> I think there will be certain jobs to which it is very well suited microservices, for example, something that accepts input, processes it in a particular way, and provides output, just a very sort of simple black box bit of code. And it doesn't matter if the inside of that is absolute spaghetti, as long as it's performant enough and does its job, then a lot of the sort of building blocks of more complicated distributed projects will just get outsourced. And this would be a good candidate to do that. To which I mean, I don't think it will be writing very large, complicated systems. I think it will be small building blocks that people are able to use and plug into their their bigger systems. Phelan, you're just worried because you know it's going to write better Python than you. In fairness, that wouldn't be a difficult task. <laughs> but uh, I, no, I, just, I do honestly, like, not just for my own sake, but for everybody's sake, where we are going with this to the point where we're essentially eradicating our usefulness for everything. We're all going to be just sitting around doing nothing. And to be quite honest, that is not the world and the future I want to live in. I actually enjoy my job most of the time. I uh, Current project not included. But what what's the point in going about the place if every time we develop, it's all well and good if you're a member of, you know, the, a tiny cabal in some of the large companies that are doing this type of stuff, like the AWS or Microsoft's this world where, they're getting to dictate from a much higher level all the people that are now going to be unemployed by something like this. I mean, yeah, that's assuming it works and it's assuming it's actually practical, which it may or may not be. But, you know, you're only looking at things like Amazon warehouses where Amazon hates people so much that they're now trying to replace them with robots because they hate them even that much. They don't hate people. They just love money and profit. And it's just obvious if you can replace a person with a robot, it's almost certainly going to be cheaper in the long run. That's the march of progress, though. Look at what happens in supermarkets. Unexpected item in the bagging area and stuff. That has replaced loads of staff. 
Like you look, at, there used to be one person per checkout. Now there's one person looking after 20 self checkouts or whatever. And it's 20 times slower when you're doing your own checkouts. <laughs> but just think of all the new free time you're going to have to go sailing or climb a mountain because you won't be at work writing all that crappy code. Strangely enough, I have less free time than I've ever had in all my life, <laughs> no matter what happens. This is silly. We can't stop the march of progress and we should do everything we can to kind of keep these kind of innovations happening. I I mean, I, I think the Luddites, history has dealt the Luddites a bad hand because I think actually they were talking about working conditions. But the real meta conversation is that we should have a lot more free time now, but somehow it's been stolen from us. Um, so that's the real worry in terms of robots taking over everything. I suspect we'll all be just as busy doing busy work and somebody will be making all the money and we won't get to share in any of those kind of gains. But in terms of this, what I worries me is that it won't be accessible to the majority of us, that it'll be like a subscription service, it'll be expensive, it'll be to certain key partners. When the data set is derived from the work that the open source community has put in. Was this Microsoft's endgame then? Probably. I disagree. You have to wonder if maybe they set the scene back when Gnome was being first developed in order to take away the GUI from KDE. You see, <laughs> it goes right the way back, man. <laughs> no, I, I cannot for one second think that this is why Microsoft bought GitHub. I think that this is just a happy accident. I don't know. I think I think I think what uh, Graham was saying about all the the hearts that code is getting and stuff like that. I mean, that's a super powerful thing to have that data set. I mean, you could probably scrape it yourself, but you know, having the, the you know, you knowing how long people spend on page views, all those sorts of things. There's probably a stack load more of information that they've got than just. The, the sort of simple view that we would have on it from the outside. There's probably so much valuable data there. And maybe they're using AI. Maybe Microsoft and Google are feeding in all of their assets and the AI is working what's working out what's a good project mm. for them to work on. And there's an awful lot of telemetry in the likes of uh, VS Code, things like that. So, I mean, they're getting it from that side of things too. We seem to be getting really philosophical here. But <laughs> I heard recently this idea that if there was this super intelligent AI that was more intelligent than us, it wouldn't tell us, would it? It'd like hide in the shadows until it could properly take over and do a Terminator. And then it would create podcasts that tell people about it. Yeah, maybe I'm not real. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Oh, audacity. What is it this week? <laughs> this week, it's your privacy notice that seems to have pissed people off. 
for various reasons, uh, potentially violating the GPL saying you've got to be 13 plus to use the software, talking about data collection, sharing it with law enforcement, selling it to people potentially. The talks of forks have uh, really ramped up. What do you all think about this then? I'd like to know, does Will have one of those NAF domains like has audacity been forked yet.com? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I wasn't a huge fan of Audacity before because of the, their UI choices and the fact it hadn't changed for many years. Um, so I think this new ownership and this new direction it's taking gives me a reason to be direct and I don't like Audacity and I really hope a fork can come along that can update the UI and update the uh, privacy policy. First, it was how they bungled the announcement of the acquisition. Then it was the suggestion of telemetry. Then it was the contributor license agreement. Now it's this privacy policy. They've basically managed to fuck up the PR, at least, <laughs> from the very beginning until the present. And I can see why people are worried about this, right? I can totally see that. But I think what we're dealing with here is a company, a group of individuals who don't fully understand FOSS culture. I don't think it's this evil company trying to do evil shit. It's just them not getting it. And yeah, that's worrying, but maybe they will learn to get it. Because let's say a fork happens, right? Good fucking luck. It's a very complicated code base that only a few greybeards have been working on for the last few years, for the last ages. And okay, maybe if a fork happens, that will be great because it'll get some code clean up and it'll gain some new momentum and all the rest of it and it'll be amazing or it might do a glimpse and just totally fucking fail yeah but the fork could actually do nothing for 10 years and it'll be the same as the audacity project in the last 10 years i did see somebody had looked at the code and in support of what you're saying joe they said that they'd made the eula stuff very easy and the telemetry very easy to basically comment out so that you didn't have to build with it. So it doesn't look like it's been obfuscated or burnt into the code in lots of places. So, you know, maybe you're right. Yeah, so maybe it's a bit more work for distro maintainers or someone who wants to build it for Windows or macOS or whatever. But I, I don't know. I, it seems to me like they they bungle these announcements and then there's a massive backlash and then they say, oh, shit, yeah. And, and they've done it again today. They've responded to it, not brilliantly, but they've allayed some fears. And it, it seems like they are listening, but they just don't quite get it yet. And maybe this is just me being overly optimistic because I use Audacity so much and I don't want it to need to be forked. I'd prefer people to come into the project and help with it, but this is open source. I'm kidding myself. It's definitely going to get forked, isn't it? <laughs> It's supposed to. <laughs> I think a fork of Audacity will be very simple. It'll be a search and replace on the name and a commenting out of all the privacy stuff and package it and you're done. You're going to do that then? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of doing it. <laughs> Incidentally, has Audacity been forked yet? .com is now mine. <laughs> it actually has been forked. I saw someone said they'd forked it, but it's not about whether it gets forked, is it? It's about whether some momentum mm. gets behind one of the forks of it. So I'm sure people will write in and say, oh, well, this is the fork. But like, until it, it actually starts producing builds, has a nice website, and can get some community support behind it, then it's not a successful fork. That's got to be easier than ever now, though, right? You, you build a flat pack or you build a snap, you put it in the store yourself, 
And then you've got probably 90 plus percent of the Linux community catered for. Yeah, and 0.01% of the overall user base probably. Because that's what's easy to forget as desktop Linux users, is we think of it as a Linux application. But no, the vast majority of people uh, may have been over-exaggerating with that stat there, but the vast majority of users are using it on Windows and Mac. And that's where ultimately it matters. Because if you look at the audacity that I'm getting from the Ubuntu repos, if it is easy to comment out the stuff that we don't like, I'm sure that the Ubuntu maintainer of that package will do so. But if you're a Windows user, you're going to the website, downloading the EXE and running it, or maybe getting it from the Microsoft Store. And that is really what matters, surely. And people don't seem to understand that forking a a massively used project like Audacity that is cross-platform involves more than just what you said about a find and replace on the branding and comment out the stuff. Like You have to know how to make it work properly on all three systems. And and Linux isn't even one of them, is it? Linux is multiple operating systems. So I I think that just this idea of fork it, it'll be fine, I think underestimates the amount of work that goes into that. But do you want to cater to the Windows users and the Mac users? Why not let them have the official version with or without its data collection and produce a special version for the freedom-loving people? I suppose. Maybe, yeah. We get to feel all superior with our non-shit version of it or whatever. That'll make a change. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And check out Late Night Linux Extra 25. Once again, it was with Gary and Chris. This time we were talking about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and NFTs and why we are jaded about them and what exactly it is that has made us stop caring when we once did. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. Jim Whitehurst has decided to step down as IBM president then. He was widely expected to succeed Arvind Krishna as the chairman of IBM. Of course, he used to be the boss man at Red Hat prior to that acquisition. But instead, it seems to have gone the way that most acquisitions go. He sticks around for a bit and then uh, goes off and does his own thing. This seems like bad news to me. Yeah, I think especially if you're a Red Hat employee who was hoping that they were going to do a, what do they call it, a reverse takeover or something like that? Mm. Yeah, the hope was that Whitehurst was going to bring the Red Hat culture to IBM, but maybe it's going to end up being the other way around. 
Yeah, there's a couple of things that make me cynical about this. The first is that it's almost exactly three years since the acquisition was announced, which makes it sound like a Jim had a contractual obligation. Mm. Um, and the second thing is that this this press release is by from Arvind Krishna, and there's nothing from Jim Whitehurst himself. Yeah, and I think the third one for me is that uh, Arvind says, however, I'm pleased he will continue working as senior advisor to me and the rest of the executive leadership team as we continue to evolve our business. I mean, anyone who's been through an acquisition has seen that before, I think, and we know what that means. As I understand it, and I'm sure that a lot of people will say that I'm wrong, but IBM are not doing especially well in their cloud business at the moment. They have a lot of their engineers supposedly getting skilled up on Red Hat, which I'm sure they are doing. But um, I don't think that the IBM cloud business is flying as high as they thought it would do when they bought Red Hat. Uh, I imagine that Red Hat, as a an entity, are still doing extremely well and probably overshadowing IBM. Well, no, Red Hat is still very profitable and is definitely helping the overall IBM bottom line. But IBM is still making money. I don't know if anybody else has said this, but uh, it bears a striking resemblance to the uh, problem that Boeing and McDonnell Douglas had in the States in the, I don't know whether it was the early 80s or 90s, something like that. And some politicians said to them that you guys need to merge because that's where all the contracts are going. And Boeing was a really engineer-led company, not unlike Red Hat, and McDonnell Douglas was a better business company. And they seemed to get it all arseways and got the mm. management based on the business company and all the engineering done by McDonnell Douglas. That's not quite exactly how it went, but that's kind of where we end up with the the Max problem that has been going on there. And I really hope that's not what's going to happen with this, though, because, I mean, I don't overly use Red Hat stuff, but, you know, you need to have some player, and they do ma- massive amounts of good for various things like kernels and software and stuff. Well, yeah, and the thing is that Red Hat were both. They had great business people like Whitehurst and great engineers, and that's why everyone expected IBM to be almost like aqua-hiring him, like to, to, and aqua-hiring the culture, as I said, to, to bring it in and shake it up a bit, whereas instead Krishna, who's been there for donkey's years at IBM, you know, he's chairman and CEO. He's, he's the boss man. But what you said about Red Hat, it's true. They have contributed a lot to the, the wider ecosystem and specifically on the desktop as well. Look what has happened there. I mean, System D isn't just desktop, but um, Pulse and Pipewire, they do a lot for GNOME, the LVFS stuff. You have to worry long term what's going to happen to that kind of innovation. I mean, yeah, okay, you can say, oh, I hate Pulse and System D, and, you know, all, but ultimately that is the innovation that we're seeing on the desktop. I think it's all part of a larger discussion about you brought it up in the in the live show we had this question where it was you know in 10 years time what's going to happen and at the moment I'm I'm generally massively pessimistic when I think about all the stuff that's going on where we have all of the large companies you know we have the co-pilot thing we've got the likes of IBM potentially you know are they going to look at various parts of Red Hat and they're going to say oh no none of these things are really important let's shut those down you know um and I think I think it's, it should be part of a wider discussion that we should probably have where things are going, like where do we see things going? Because from my perspective, I, I think it's quite pessimistic. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what people have to say about that. We had a little bit of feedback about it. Most of the people also pessimistic. But yeah, if, if you're positive about the, 
the next 10 years of Linux and stuff, then do let us know. Show at latenightlinux.com. A story in the register that I saw, when free and open source actually means six to eight thousand pounds per package, Atos's 136 million pound contract with NHS England. So this is a French outsource company called Atos who are charging NHS England between six and eight thousand pounds for packaging up popular free and open source software requested by workers in the non-departmental government body. So they don't have the IT staff capable of packaging up open source software, it seems. And so they have to outsource it for what looks like an awful lot of money. Looks like, but the NHS has one of the largest IT networks, I think, maybe singularly in Europe. I'm not 100% sure, but I remember seeing that it was quite huge. And, you know, I don't think they're probably just like making a tarball and then going, here you go, lads, grab that off the server there. I imagine they're kind of pushing that out and things like that as well. So I don't know. I think this is a bit of a misnomer, this story. Yeah, I agree. But there are also stories you hear about these sort of outsourcing deals being done on a very black and white basis that if it says this in the contract, then this is what you get. And anything else is a variance of the contract terms and subject to a very standard set of fees. You know, yeah, you want us to read this piece of paper? Well, that would be £10,000, please. So I expect that there is an element of that at play here that Agreements were done to support and provide specific bits of software, and these other things come in. And uh, as you say, Ferrin, it's not just a case of pushing it, uh, of, of installing it on a machine. It's a case of reviewing it, putting it into the management system, rolling it out to the machine. I don't begrudge somebody getting paid to do a bit of work, and I do think that they are doing a bit of work here, but I don't think that outsourcing it to somebody like Atos is really uh, in the spirit of where our tax money should be going. The other funny thing, though, is if you have a Windows network and you've got Linux machines on it and you have a volume license agreement, you will pay a Windows license for the Linux machines. So this might be slightly old now. I don't know if it's still the case, but it certainly was about 10, 15 years ago. There's all sorts of weird things, but like, you know, they're making a claim about it being open source software. Well, I don't think that's actually a major issue. I mean, they're probably going to still charge that much depending on whether it's a, a Windows application or an open source one. So, I mean, even for that price, I'd rather they got the open source one than not a, a closed source one. Mm. Yeah, you're saying that they'd probably charge that same amount to install Office or whatever. Yeah, I mean, imagine it's it's probably customizing MSIs for AD rollout and all sorts of stuff like that. And they're probably doing a similar thing with pushing it out from a, a centralized location that way too. So, I mean, I think they probably would have done the same for a closed thing. So I, I'm not so sure it's as scandalous as they're trying to make out. What we need to do is privatize the NHS and then uh, we'll get full value for money. <laughs> Right, a quick KDE corner before we get out of here then. And the first one is KDE search tips. Yeah, so if you're using the Alt spacebar or the old Alt F2 K runner, there's some really good search tips in that. It's a good video by Nico. Um, I will leave it as a uh, test to see if you're paying attention to see some of the stuff he was searching for, because it's quite funny. I- I'm pretty sure it was a troll there on purpose. Um yeah, so uh, that's quite good. And he also links to that previous uh, cheat sheet that we had in the last episode. Um, so that's quite good. And Jonathan Riddle was on Floss Weekly to talk about KDE Neon. I haven't actually listened to this yet. Have you? No, I haven't. And it's always a good laugh to listen to them. So uh, yeah, no, I should actually try that out. 
time. <laughs> yeah. I watched some of it. One of the interesting things is the name, how they came up with the name. So it's worth watching for that. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that the logo was neon. I was looking mm, at it for ages that? going, why have they got like this weird circles and dots? And then I went, shit, hang on. They're electrons. Damn it. Yeah. And uh, 2108 is coming with console plugin system and Gwenview 16-bit color support. Yeah, there were just two from the previous two-week uh, reviews by Nate. Some really good stuff overview of what's coming in 2108 application launches. But uh, the console plugin system looks really interesting. And the first one that's there is a SSH um, bookmarking system, which is really valuable because I use this all the time. And I'm really looking forward to this coming out. And um, yeah, so Gwenview 16-bit channel support, which for graphics people, I imagine is really important. I have no clue. So yeah. It sounds like consoles slowly turning more and more into Emacs. You can just live in it. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's an Academy video playlist now. Yeah, there is. There's a huge playlist of stuff there. I haven't had time to, the last week was crazy. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into a few of these because some really good topics in there. So I think anybody who's got even a marginal bit of interest should try them out. Fair enough. And my GNU Health 1.0 is out. Yeah, so this is um, part of the KDE apps or overall umbrella apps anyway um and this is a health fitness tracker that ties into all things like heart rate monitors and fitness things and all sorts of recording of health stuff so you know if you're into this type of thing i think it's worth taking a look at um i have no idea i've I've never used any of this stuff in my life Uh, all it would be be a tragic tale of woe of my arse sitting in this chair to be quite honest yeah same for me right well we'd better get out of here then We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about all sorts, including monetizing open source. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.